Hello there, this is Christopher Melkin, and you are listening to Cast Perfect. This is CEU Medieval Radio Show in Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Ruth Mazo Ferris. She's the professor and chair of the Department of History at the University of Minnesota. Um, and well, what can I say? But thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Um, I wanted to invite you to uh, to talk on our show today because you've done a lot of work um, uh, related to gender and class and all sorts of interesting uh, social history topics in the Middle Ages. But uh, my primary interest and my sort of um, familiarity is um, mostly from your book, Common Women, about the experience of prostitutes, uh, particularly in medieval England. Um, uh, I'm just going to start with a very general uh, question here. Um, uh, would you mind telling uh, the listeners a little bit about common women? Yeah, so common women focuses on prostitution in late medieval England in the context both of um, the history of sexuality and the history of women's work and place in the economy because prostitution, well, prostitution was work and it does need to be treated that way. People chose to do it not because they were sexually uh, you know, overactive. I mean, medieval writers thought that women became prostitutes out of an excess of lust. Uh, most modern scholars would agree that women became prostitutes uh, because it was one among a, a limited number of alternatives that they had for earning a living. But we can't ignore the fact that this was not just any kind of work. It was sex work, and that is fundamentally different from other kinds of work in terms of how it was treated within the culture. And what I liked most about writing this book is that I was able to combine uh, the documents of practice, court records, uh, which are the best clues that we have as to what actually is going on in these women's lives with uh, things like literary works and uh, handbooks for preachers that give an idea of how prostitution was regarded within the culture. And in a lot of my work, I focused on one or the other of those two kinds of approaches, but I'm always uh, happiest with my work when I'm able to bring them together. I think one thing that really impressed me about the common woman in particular is, is what you mentioned, the fact that you use such a variety of sources, which uh, all really tell um, you know different uh, different aspects about it. I mean, on one hand, there's the very polemical text. Uh, you know, that you mentioned uh, in regards to religion, but the, the court records I always found to be very interesting. Um, a friend of mine who uh, researches prostitutes in Austria um, was talking about one famous example, I think from the city of Bolvano, where um, there was a court record of uh, one of the, the patrons, the, the Johns of the prostitutes, who um, while he was visiting the city brothel there, stole all of the furniture. So it, it was a, it was a funny incident because the, the in, you know in one of those cases usually you hear about prostitutes um, as defendants 
uh, I would imagine. And this was a case where uh, they were more the plaintiffs. Um, but in general, the the the, the court records, uh, um, when women are being accused of of prostitutes, I mean, is is this a very severe thing? Is this a very um, stigmatizing uh, thing within the community to have a uh, such a claim laid against you. So in London, there were shame punishments. I mean, prostitutes had to uh, wear particular kinds of garments that would mark them out. And it's this is true in a number of places across Europe. Although in some in some places it's a prescription of what kinds of things they have to wear. In some places, it's a prescription of certain things that they can't wear. And that happens, that happens in London also. They're not allowed to wear, um, to wear fur, for example, and not allowed to wear fur, you know, as respectable women do, or honest women would be the, the phrase actually used. Uh, so in sometimes this is, you know, a way to mark them out. And there are, there are shame punishments um, involving the pillory. In the ecclesiastical courts, there are also shame punishments, um, processions around the church carrying a candle and so on. In the church courts, those punishments are often found for um, anyone who fornicates, you know, male or female. In the... Uh, in the urban courts, it's usually just, you know, a punishment for the women. But what we don't know is how, how much this, um, this attempt to shame the women really applied on the level of the community in which they live. That is, they are, uh, to the, Wealthy men who would maybe go slumming and and patronize the prostitutes. These women are degraded. Uh, were they so degraded to the communities in which they live? Uh, I think the answer is probably yes, but it's a quite open question. One of the th- reasons why I think it's probably yes is that there are uh, examples of complaints to the authorities by neighbors that uh, houses in the neighborhood are being used as brothels. And that is, you know, you can see why they might consider that a nuisance. I mean, comings and goings at various night fights and so on. But if this is really, you know, their neighbors, people within the community complaining about them, it's an indication that it, you know, it was not um, totally accepted. On the other hand, these are, somebody's mothers and sisters uh, or wives, some of them are deracinated and have have come to the city from the countryside and may not be really integrated into the community, but some of them are. And this is one of the things that the sources don't give us as good an idea about uh, as we'd like. One other aspect of this, of course, is that the definition of a prostitute, I mean, today, most people would understand a prostitute as 
someone who takes money for sex. It wasn't such a sharp definition then. I mean, there were certainly women who did take money for sex, but any woman who was promiscuous could be accused of being a meritrix. It didn't have exactly the same, that's the Latin term, it didn't have exactly the same meaning as a modern prostitute. So the uh, the church certainly would have classified a number of women in this category who would not have been regarded as uh, sex workers by their neighbors. Terminology is definitely very important, and one it's one of the issues that you also talk about. Um, you know, I think you I remember um, you making the distinction between uh, someone who was a, a whore and someone who was a bawd. But mm-hmm. um, would you mind us uh, uh, spending a, a, a sentence or two telling us what exactly a bawd is and how they re- relate to, to to this activity? Well, a bawd, I mean, the, the closest modern term is a pimp, except that we think of pimps as being mostly men. And in medieval London, anyway, uh, it seems to have been mostly women, or at least the people who were accused were women. And it was sometimes men who would own the brothels and be behind the sex trade, but uh, women or couples who were actively involved in it. So a bawd is often someone who, uh, not just somebody who runs a brothel, or although somebody who runs a brothel could be called that, but someone who uh, brings women to men, you know, in their lodgings. And uh, the, the, I mean, a more more neutral uh, English term would be a go-between, and again, there is there's a fine line between somebody who's a go-between in terms of uh, arranging marriages and someone who's a go-between in terms of arranging illicit sexual assignations. There, there are a couple of really famous um, literary characters who are bawds. I mean, one is La Celestina in uh, Spanish literature, and there's also um, Dame Sirith in English literature who manages, she she is paid by a man uh, who is lusting after a particular woman and who is trying to persuade her to uh, to have sex with him. And she, Dave Sarah has a little dog, and she puts some sort of, I think it might be mustard powder, anyway, she puts something in the dog's eyes to, to make the eyes water. And then she tells the woman that, this was her daughter, but because her daughter you know, refused to have sex with someone who was dying of love for her, she was punished by being turned into a dog, and now she's weeping. Oh. And that, that was how she persuades uh, the woman to to uh, have sex with the man. Now, that's not a... The, Dame Sirith was taking money for doing this. The woman who was the object of this man's lust is not taking money for it. She wouldn't be a prostitute in that uh, modern sense. But that's that's how uh, odds were were envisioned as operating. Okay, so there, there there's a lot of um, we tend to I mean with prostitution we tend to think of it as the world's oldest 
profession, but honestly, attitudes towards it have changed so much, uh, you know, over the past couple of centuries that it's easy, you know, I think that it's easy to, um, you know, to imagine that for a lot of everyday people, I think the idea of, you know, um, where exactly the pros- visiting the sort of local neighborhood prostitute falls on sort of like list of sins most grievous to least grievous, um, visiting a prostitute was, you know, Simple-ish behavior, but there was there was something of a pragmatic attitude on the part of some church fathers. I mean, there's that famous uh, Thomas of Aquinas quote about the comparing prostitution to the city sewer system. Yes, I believe that is pseudo Thomas Aquinas. Pseudo, okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but yes, that that it, prostitution is. Uh, it's like a it's like a sewer system in uh I believe he says in a palace anyway it you know, it's not it's not pleasant, but you need it to keep the whole palace from stinking and prostitution has provided a uh a safety valve for society this is this is a very hydraulic model of sexuality right men are uh men are compelled to be sexually active, they need a safety valve, and the prostitutes uh, provide that. This goes back to Augustine also, who who says that if you uh, take away prostitutes, you'll pollute everything with lust. But saying that prostitution is necessary for a well-ordered society doesn't then give prostitutes credit for uh, for doing a useful job. I mean, they, they are, can still be considered shameful and degraded. And this is, this is still a, uh, a very hotly debated issue nowadays. I can, um, you know, if we know that there is high demand for, uh, paid sex and that some women are going to become sex workers, should it be, uh, legalized and regulated so these women can have the protection of the law and so that they can uh, create better working conditions for themselves or should we just recognize that uh, prostitution is inherently sexual violence uh, that prostitutes or I mean a lot of uh, a lot of people don't even use the term prostitutes now, they will say, you know, on the one hand, they'll say sex workers. Uh, and that's a larger category than than just women who take money for sex. I mean, it can be um, people who perform in, uh, in pornography, it could be strippers, you know, whatever, they're all sex workers. Or, uh, you know, at the other end, the people who think that this is essentially a form of rape uh, will refer to prostituted women rather than prostitutes, because it takes the agency away from them. It makes clear that they are the victims, even if they are making a choice to go into this line of work. They're making this choice uh, under compulsion. And uh, that what the law ought to do is not punish them, but make... uh, 
make it illegal to for the man to have sex for money uh, in order to you know try and abolish the trade. So this is I think Ireland is the place where this has been uh, most hotly discussed recently in terms of contemporary legislation, but it, you know, this is something that, um, that comes up in, you know, since, I mean, since the Middle Ages, uh, the, you know, legalized brothels were, uh, were important in the 19th century for the British Navy and the examination of, uh, prostitutes regularly for venereal disease for not for their protection, but for the protection of the sailors uh, who were their customers. Uh, the the use of uh, Korean women as comfort women by the Japanese army uh, is a very big issue now uh, in Korea, the issue of the apologies for that. But although although this was this was official on the part of the Japanese army. They certainly weren't the only army in the 20th century or the 21st who raped captive women. And again, the line between that and prostitution is a really, really fine line. And I expect the, you know, the same issues were uh, playing out in some of the same ways in the Middle Ages, even though it's a different uh, set of cultural circumstances. You won't have to take a very quick break, but we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. 
This is Christopher Mulkey, and we're joined today by Dr. Ruth Mazo Harris from the University of Minnesota. Um, thank you very much for also what's been a very interesting talk so far. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more in uh, this section about some of the work that you've done uh, on slavery. I mean, we uh, talked a little bit about we we made reference to to that I think in the first. Uh, uh, part of this talk, and I'm not quite as clear with uh, some of the work that you've done on uh, slavery, so um, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, your particular uh, research interests on it? Yes, well, I have to say I'm not I'm not quite as familiar with the work I've done on slavery anymore because this is my first book, and it was quite a while ago now. Uh, so there are there are other people who've been working really actively in the field, and I will talk about that more recent work in a moment. But my work was on slavery in medieval Scandinavia. And again, what I tried to do in that project is to combine different kinds of sources because we have the Icelandic sagas where slavery is depicted as an everyday part of society in the saga age the 9th and 10th centuries. And then we have law codes, which are from much later, that talk about slavery. But already at a time when it's starting to be obsolete. So there was slavery at, you know, in the early Middle Ages throughout Europe. And it seems to have lasted somewhat longer in Scandinavia and elsewhere because of slave raiding. And I was interested in the the role that it played in society. And I have to say, at the time I wrote my book on it, I was not as interested in the gender aspects of it as I later became. And there are, I, I wrote a little bit about that afterwards. I talked about it again in, uh, in my book on marriages. I talked about, about uh, slavery and other forms of, of social inequality and how they uh, shaped gender relationships. But at the, what I concluded about slavery in Scandinavia in that book is that although slave labor did uh, form a part of the economy, it, probably, it didn't form a really huge part of the economy in the way that it did, say, in ancient Rome or in uh, the New World with its very large plantations. But slavery did play a really important role in shaping an ideology, particularly in Iceland without a king, but in the other Scandinavian countries as well, uh, where there were, are assemblies in which free men participated. And what, what does it mean? What, what does it take for there to be free men? Well, there have to be somebody who's not free men. So that being a free man, even a poor one, means something. And, uh, those were the slaves. The other thing that I tried to talk about is the distinction between slavery and serfdom, and I basically argued again, uh, you'll see a bit of a theme here in my research, I argued for the blurriness of that line, that the 
in fact, same Latin word, servus, we translate as slave or as serf, depending on the context in which it's used. Now, they, medieval people, would have been able to distinguish between different groups of people for whom that same name was used, but not, not as sharp a distinction as many historians have made. And so I sort of invented uh, the term unfreedom for a general category that would include both uh, slaves and serfs. Definitely interesting stuff. I know that in, in Hungary, uh, as a comparison, there's been a lot of uh, interest on the legal codes of St. Stephen and St. Ladislaus from the 11th and, uh, and 13th century as well, where there's very there's very clear rules about things like, you know, um, no Muslims in Hungary shall own Christian slaves, or um, who the slaves can and cannot marry, and uh, the, the interest on the law codes, you know, is definitely a lot more concerned with, you know, um, like if if a if a slave is dismembered, what the punishment shall be, and the sort of implication being that well, if a slave loses his hands, uh, they can't work as well, and that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's interesting to, to think about slavery in, uh, in, in medieval Europe as a large, when you're talking about a, a timeline of slavery in Scandinavia, roughly from when, when to when are we talking about? Well, we, you know, there's evidence of it in the Viking Age, 8th, 9th centuries. Uh, the one Firm date that we have is an ordinance in Sweden for the abolition of slavery in one particular province in 1335, but it's unlikely that it was very significant by that time. That's, but that's the only, you know, really firm date. It appears in law codes from the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, references to slavery. I mean, there's nothing, most of this material, the sagas, the law codes, the written versions that we have, the earliest manuscripts are 13th century. How, you know, how early this went, either in written or oral form, these particular texts is really uh, difficult to determine. Most of the scholars believe that the Norwegian, the earliest Norwegian law codes um, are 11th century in uh, in origin. I wanted to say something. Uh, you mentioned uh, Muslims owning Christian slaves, and that reminded me that I wanted to say something about the really great recent work that's been done on slavery in the Mediterranean region, where a lot of it is uh, involving slaves that uh, come out of different religious communities, both Christians being enslaved by Muslims and, and vice versa. And the um, there's been very, very, very interesting work done by Sally McKee on slavery. She started out working on uh, Venetian Crete and slavery in Italy, but she's done also work on slavery in the Mediterranean um, generally. There are a number of uh, French and Spanish scholars as well who've been working on it. Uh, I had a recent PhD student, uh, Kevin Mummy, who wrote a dissertation involving uh, slavery in Mallorca. And what's very interesting there is 
that they uh, they treated Sardinian captives who were Christian differently from the uh, from uh, non-Christian captives, uh, and they use they use different sets of terminology about them. But this this idea that no non-Christian should hold a Christian slave is something that you find all over the place. But then there's, there's also the question of whether a Christian ought to hold a Christian slave. And the answer to that that most authorities have to give is yes, or at least if the slave converts to Christianity after being enslaved, that doesn't mean they get their freedom. Because there's this big worry that, of course, slaves are just going to say they're converting to Christianity uh, so that they so that they could become free. Uh, but they want to, um, the church obviously wants to encourage slave owners to have their slaves convert rather than discourage it. So they make very clear that you don't, you can't get out of slavery by converting after the fact. Then there's also the question of what kind of Christianity and can you enslave, if you are uh, a Latin Christian, can you enslave someone who's an Eastern Christian or not? And this is a very, uh, it's a very hotly debated issue in the uh, Mediterranean and the Central Middle Ages. I'm sure. Uh, um, the other the other question I wanted to ask, and we, we've kind of been talking about it, is um, well, for Scandinavia, it's, uh, where are these slaves coming from? Are they Slavic? In the uh, in the sagas, they talk about slaves coming from Ireland and uh, from probably from the north of Britain as well. The There have been, uh, well, in, in previous decades, there were blood type studies. And then more recently, uh, there have been DNA studies. You know, the Icelandic genome is probably the... <laughs> The most, the most tested gene pool of, of anywhere in the world. Uh, and they found that the, uh, the mitochondrial DNA in the Icelandic gene pool indicates more of a relationship with, uh, the mitochondrial DNA that you find in, um, Celtic populations uh, in Ireland and uh, the north of Scotland then does the Y chromosome DNA. I mean, the the conclusion, so I've read these articles. Uh, I read sort of the introduction of the article and I read the conclusion and I am, I don't have the background to understand the, the details of the scientific argument, but the conclusion is that there is more Celtic DNA in the female ancestors of the Icelanders than there is in their male ancestors. One explanation for that is the importation of female slaves from Ireland, which is what the sagas tell us was happening, but it's not the only explanation. There's also the explanation that, uh, Many of the founding families of Iceland spent a generation or two in the Scottish Isles 
or even in Ireland before they settled in Iceland and they intermarried there with the locals. So it could just have easily been high status Celtic women who are contributing their DNA to this gene pool as slaves. It's probably some of both. Now, um, in the in the rest of Scandinavia, the slaves were likely who, whoever was the uh, the easiest to be victims of raids. And in Sweden, that would likely be people from around the Baltic. We do know that large amounts of silver uh, reached Sweden, particularly Gotland. Uh, there's these huge hordes of uh, silver dirhams, so coins from the Islamic world. The you know, Muslim traders were likely getting something in return for all these coins. Uh, there are various possibilities, you know, amber, fur, and so on. Um, also slaves. Now, where were those slaves coming from? Were they... Uh, were they Slavs who were captured by Scandinavians and uh, sold to Muslim traders? And some of them also you know, brought home as slaves, likely. Uh, but the documentary evidence is very thin. There, There is some archaeological evidence that's been interpreted as slaves being uh, killed in their owners' burials. We, you know, it's difficult to know from that uh, who they were, and I don't know of any DNA studies that have been done uh, based on those burials. It would be very interesting to uh, to ask those kinds of questions if it were possible. There is a, an account by a Muslim traveler in Fadlan, very famous account, of a Rus burial. The Rus were possibly groups of Scandinavians uh, on the Volga, and there's an account of a man who dies and is uh, burned in a ship in what's taken to be a Scandinavian ritual, and uh, a slave is put to death with him. It's it is hard to know, uh, again, how, how much, it, I mean, even Padlan reports that the slave has sex with all the men in the village, uh, before she is put to death in this part of the ritual. He has a sort of fascination with sex and with sex with slaves, and it's hard to know how much of this is accurate reporting and how much of it is kind of his interpretation of something that he glimpsed are not entirely accurately. Uh, when it's just the one source, it's problematic to build you know, too many theories on it. This source has been, uh, I mean, the, the, the story uh, by the account by Ibn Fadlan, I should say story. I mean, it's not, it's not fictional. It may be somewhat fictionalized, but it's not fictional, but it's been put together with, uh, Beowulf 
first by Michael Crichton in a novel called Eaters of the Dead, which is one of one of my uh, crusades has been to get to get that you know in various libraries I've been in get that shelved in fiction uh, rather than in history because it is fiction, but it's presented. There's a there's a preface uh, that purports to be by a Norwegian scholar saying here's this document that was discovered and the document sort of combines Beowulf and Ibn Fadlan and a lot of stuff that was just made up by Crichton. And so it it's uh it's presented as nonfiction, but it's fiction. And I don't mean um I don't mean that it's uh that it's fraudulent. That's a, it's a literary device. I mean, there are many novels that that you know present themselves as uh, accurate accounts of past events, right? Yeah, That's Dan what he's doing. But 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 he did it. Um, he Crichton did it, I guess, plausibly enough that many libraries have shelved this in history, and it isn't. It's a novel. Anyway, this is the novel that was made into the film The Thirteenth Warrior. Oh. So there is. There is some um, element of, of historical truth in the 13th Warrior, but it's sort of refracted through uh, through several stages of fictionalization. To be fair, it gets people interested in the past, but if it gives a distorted image, it's always a, a tricky, tricky. Issue. Well, it, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't complain about distortion if people weren't shelving it in nonfiction. Uh, but I don't, um, I don't really have any problem with fiction that, especially speculative fiction that, uh, uses sort of medieval themes and kind of builds its own story on it. I mean, that is, as long as it's not claiming to be Accurate to historical fact. I don't have any problem with it not being accurate to historical fact. That that uh, the sort of neo-medieval stories are a great way of getting people uh, interested in in the study of history. And in fact, I teach a class that looks at, that reads some medieval texts and then looks at the way modern authors have used these texts. And there's a huge range of ways in which they use them. I mean, some of them do a fairly accurate retelling of fictional medieval stories. So it doesn't mean it's necessarily accurate history, but, you know, we'll just retell the medieval story in their own words. And some of them will, uh, will just riff on it in very, very interesting ways. Sounds really fascinating. Um, We will have to take a short break for now, but uh, please enjoy. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back. This is Christopher Milken, your host of Past Perfect, and we're joined today by Dr. Ruth Mesokaris. And uh, we had an interesting talk so far on, on um, prostitution, on slavery, but uh, it's my understanding that um, you've done a lot of work recently about um, um, medieval masculinities, and uh, in particular, um, uh, male friendships. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the work you've done on that? Yeah, I want to say first of all that my interest in masculinity grows out of my feminist scholarship. In other words, it's not the, okay, I am now, you know, women have been done and now we're going to go back to looking at men again, but rather I think that you can't you can't understand gender without understanding genders and uh, ideas of masculinity are really important to how men treat women. That doesn't mean that everything about masculinity has to involve women. And one of the things that I'm interested in what is male friendships, but even he, there, it's not, it's not irrelevant to women. One of the things my current project changed a little bit. It started out, it was going to be a project on male friendships. And well, I thought, well, first I'm going to look at David and Jonathan, because that's really the a prototypical male friendship that gets discussed in both Christian and Jewish societies. And I wanted to, do, to be able to do some comparative work. Once I started looking at that, I realized that David's relationship with Jonathan is really not the most important thing about his masculinity in the medieval context. And I think this is going to be a larger project, not about friendship, but about King David and King David as a figure of masculinity. And David and Jonathan is just one part of that. But I will say something about male friendship and David and Jonathan. As part of my theme, in this, in our conversation about the blurring of lines, one of the things I'm interested in is, was there a line between friendship and love, and where was it? I mean, today, people are very Well, I, okay, I'm not going to generalize about people as in all the people in the world, but uh, people in the West uh, seem to be quite tied to the idea of concrete sexual identities. So two men, well, if they're straight, they can have a friendship, and if they're gay, it might be something more than friendship, or, you know, if one of them is bi. Uh, similarly, a man and a woman, you know, if if uh, the man is gay, then they can just have a friendship, but if the man is straight, then, you know, it there's always an undercurrent of something more than friendship. These are some, these are kind of the, the stereotypes in popular culture of how friendship works. And there was a quite funny uh, video you can see on YouTube called uh, Bromance, which is, has, has uh, 
two men sort of singing about their their bromance and how totally not gay it is. And this has become sort of a joke nowadays, right? That 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 men uh, men who have close friendships sort of fall over themselves explaining how no 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 they're really not gay and this you know explanation itself may be a sign that they are. Anyway, these issues play out really differently in the Middle Ages because they get to have these categories straight and gay, at least not in the same way that uh, we do. They certainly had uh, kinds of preferences for certain sexual activities, but they were understood differently. So uh, a lot of the work that's been done on male friendships, for example, uh, well, people who've written on David and Jonathan in the biblical context, uh, Richard Lionheart and Philip Augustus of France, one of the big concerns has been, you know, were they gay? Well, what does that mean? Does it mean were they having sex? You know, we could ask whether they were having sex. Uh, that's in some ways not a very useful question. I mean, more interesting is what did people think was going on? And what did you know, when when, pe- when male friendships are described in a certain way, what did that mean to the people who are describing it? And one of the things that I have been looking at is in medieval retellings of the Book of Samuel. In the medieval context, it would the two books of Samuel would be called the first and second book of Kings, and what we know as the first and second book of Kings would be the third and fourth book of Kings. Anyway, I'll, I'll use I'll use the the designation of the books of Samuel. Uh, When when people in the Middle Ages retold or alluded to the story of David and Jonathan uh, in the book of Samuel, did they use the same language to talk about David's relationship to Jonathan as they did to talk about David's relationship to Jonathan's sister, Michal, whom he married? And it's very interesting tracing when they do use the same kinds kind of language and when they don't. And the uh, by the later Middle Ages, the friendship between David and Jonathan, I will argue, tends to be seen as it's still still very passionate. It's still described in highly emotional terms, but it's also, there's a big emphasis on loyalty and on uh, yeah, I hate to use the word feudal because that opens up a whole new can of worms, but essentially on, on the idea that one is a loyal vassal to the other, although it shifts. You know, I mean, David is initially a vassal to uh, Jonathan's father and uh, you know he remains so I mean he doesn't although he's been anointed he's not crowned king until the death of Saul and Jonathan but nevertheless as it ends up Jonathan is the one who is loyal to David this is important which one is the the leader and which one is the follower uh-huh. because that's how a lot of medieval relationships were structured, including friendships and including romantic relationships. I mean, we, 
again, who's we? Uh, you know, modern, educated, westernized people have this idea that romantic relationships, uh, including marriages, should be more or less on a basis of equality and give and take, not necessarily uh, you know, even even people who believe that uh, men and women are fundamentally different uh, sort of believe in a kind of complementarity, but you can look at uh, what groups like the promise keepers in the United States and others uh, talk about women as, as being submissive to their husbands, and they're going back to this medieval idea, well, not just medieval, and ancient and medieval and early modern and sort of everything before the 19th century idea that uh, that whatever uh, that women are important within a marriage uh, and they have a lot to contribute, but the man is at the head. But in the Middle Ages, this is not just um, you know, the man at the head of a marriage, somebody has to be at the head of every relationship. There are very few entirely egalitarian uh, relationships that you can find. There are some uh, between, you know, bond between two knights who are fighting for the same lord or something like that. But uh, most relationships of any kind, not just romantic relationships that you'll read about in medieval literature or even medieval documents of practice, you know, there's one person who is seen as the senior partner. Anyway, so that's one of the things that I've been looking into in terms of the relationship between David and Jonathan. One very interesting thing that I would like to pursue more is that uh, one of the major late medieval Christian exegetes, Dennis the Samuel. There isn't nearly as much commentary on uh, the books of Samuel in the Middle Ages as there are in some other books of the Bible. People just, you know, weren't as interested. But, but there's, you know, there's a reasonable amount. And Dennis the Carthusian uh, talks about David and Jonathan, and he compares them to Amicus and Emilius, uh, a famous pair of things who are found both in Latin, well, in a Latin hagiographical text, and also in uh, vernaculars all over Europe. And the Latin version is quite different from the vernaculars. So I think it's really very interesting that Dennis compares David and Jonathan to this quintessential medieval buddy tale. And I would really like to find out what version of the tale he was using. I mean, there was in his monastery a copy of Vincent of Bove's encyclopedia, and that includes the hagiographical version. But there was also a, a uh, Dutch translation of... Um, of one of a vernacular version, and he could have known that as well. So this is this is sort of taking me into uh, a lot of interesting um, textual questions and sort of away from uh, from documents of practice. But I hope to be able to put this in a context of how 
real medieval people used these stories and ways of thinking about relationships to think about their lives as well. Uh, one small question before we go on break. Uh, it's a really fascinating topic and definitely want to hear more about it. But uh, um, in talking about the friendship between two men where there is an, an, an unequal aspect about it, um, how is this sort of inequality usually manifested? Is any particular uh, gestures or uh, language well, used? Uh, it's usually that one is, well, it's often that one is older and one is younger, or that one is of a higher social status uh, than the other. And I mean, if you look at David and Jonathan in art, they are usually both depicted as as clean shaven, but in many images when they first meet, David is depicted as much smaller than Jonathan. Later on, they're they're more of the same size as David gains in uh, in social standing, you might say. Very. And the clean shaven aspect. I mean, older men are more often depicted with beards and. and younger men as clean-shaven. A lot of your work, you know, slavery, prostitution, masculinity, friendship, legality, sexuality, a lot of your research uh, on the Middle Ages has so many repercussions for a lot of life in, you know, at at present at the moment. And um, as a researcher, um, how how do you manage to bridge this gap between, you know, the Middle Ages and the modern period? The reason why I find the Middle Ages so fascinating is because it's a culture that in many ways is ancestral to modern Western culture. I mean, even, even those of us who are not Christian are living you know, with the aftermath of medieval Christianity. And certainly the legal systems of much of the world, uh, you know, Europe and those areas that were colonized by Europe, draw very heavily on medieval legal systems and ways of conceptualizing how people relate to each other. So it's, it's ancestral to us, but on the other hand, in some ways, it's really radically different. So... One way of understanding contemporary issues is by looking at what's the medieval situation? Were these issues here? How were they understood differently? How did they play out differently? And I think it can, it can help us moderns understand that our way of doing things isn't the only way of doing things and there are alternative understandings. Um, there, you can find alternative understandings by looking at other cultures today, but you can also find them by looking in the past. And I think that all historians are asking questions that are in some way conditioned by their present experience. Some are doing it more explicitly than others. But, you know, what the reasons why you're interested in, in a particular question always has something to do with your background and your training and the world you live in. I'm, you know, I'm interested 
in certain questions about the Middle Ages because I'm a feminist, and I think that doing uh, doing a history that's informed by the present is not really a problem. Where you run into a problem is not by asking questions that are informed by the present. Where you run into a problem is if your answers are informed by the present. Your answers have to be informed by what you find in the sources. But you're always, you're inevitably going to be bringing the present into your interpretation of those sources and into the questions that you ask. And I don't see anything wrong with being explicit about that fact. No, I think it's it's a very tough balance, but I think it's one that you manage very well. So um, Thank you. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us on here on Medieval Radio. It really has been an absolute pleasure. And for those of you listening at home, uh, as always, um, if you have an email, uh, any questions, comments, or suggestions, be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ce.hu. Um, uh, be sure to visit us, of course, uh, on our website, www.medievalradio.org. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. From all of us here, we thank you very much for listening. Take care and goodbye.